don't know why you guys are laughing. <laughs> hey, getting old is not for wimps. That's all I can say. <laughs> all right. We are, are in the middle of a short series. We're going to um, take a break next week. I'm going to do a parenthetical sermon. But we are talking about the church and fundamentals with regard to the church. And so I want us to continue with this mindset because as we look through the scriptures, sometimes what happens over the course of the original writing and in centuries passing by with various cultures coming in and going, it influences or affects the Lord's body. And those influences are what we call culture. And those cultures change from place to place and time to time. And yet, here we are as New Testament Christians saying, well, we want to just adhere to the scriptures, which is what we ought to be doing. But sometimes because of our cultural influences, it in fact affects the way we look at scripture and how we interpret scripture, how we use hermeneutics. And so those are the things that I'm wanting for us to be able to deal with. And so we're talking about, well, we're talking about last week's sermon looks like. <laughs> yeah, the... Yeah, okay, I forgot to change the title. My bad. So we're, we're looking at elders, um, deacons, and preachers, and continuing with this theme with regard to these traditions and discern between it from actual scripture. And that's hard because when, when you grow up and you're always taught one particular way of how you read and how you interpret scripture and what is in fact binding upon us, that's easy especially when no one will challenge it. And then you go to another congregation, and all of a sudden, little nuances might be there. And you're like, well, I don't know about that. Or it may be greater nuances. And then now we have friction. And in the body of Christ, you don't have to go far from congregation to congregation. You will see different interpretations with regard to this aspect of the Lord's church, just like we did last week. When we talked about the church name and membership and attendance, there are differences, not from what Scripture teaches, but the way we interpret those very Scriptures. And it's a great thing that we can use the word Bible authority, and it's great that we can talk about hermeneutics, but when it comes down to the nuts and bolts, it's the application of that very hermeneutics that we espouse to use. And so let's look at Scripture Let's see if we can understand it with what we have in light of our cultures and see if we can discern between traditions that have crept into the body of Christ over the centuries and over the cultures and apply it to the subjects that we're talking about when we deal with church fundamentals. All right, let's talk about elders. Before we actually look at scriptures, one of the things that you will see when this word is used is that this is not a new word that comes up all of a sudden in the New Testament scriptures, right? You can go into the Old Testament scriptures and the word elders are used. And you'll actually see from the very beginning of Old Testament usage all the way to you get to the very first pages of what we call the New Testament scriptures when we're still looking at Judaism and it has changed in its evolution. So do some studying and you will see that elders become a more uh, crystallized class of individuals within the community of Israel, all right? And it is with that in mind that this word is being used. And of course, when we read passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, just as Jesse had read for us, you can actually see how with that mindset, we can see the application of this 
group of individuals among believers. Now, I'm not expecting you to read this because it's very small. I try to fit everything on here. So I'm not expecting you to read it. What I am wanting you to do is notice a couple of things. So on the left side, you can read 1 Timothy 3, and on the right side, Titus 1. And it's a list of 16 things if we look at it as an itemized list in 1 Timothy 3. And you have things in yellow, blue, and white. And then in Titus chapter 1, same thing, yellow, blue, and white. And then there's one more thing where I have it underlined, certain words. Because these are some similarities, all in yellow. Yeah, yellow, all similarities in yellow. All things that are different in white. And then the blue is one of those where you can kind of see how they might be, but they might not be similar, right? So what are we to make of this list? So look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 in verses 1 following, 1 through 7 in this case, or Titus chapter 1, verse 6, um, well, verse 5, but verse 6 through 9, and you get to see these lists. So just reading it real quickly, that in 1 Timothy 3, this person who's going to serve as an elder must be above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not gen- needs to be gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money, manages his own house well. And there's a discrepancy on if this is part number 13 and 14, if that's the same clause or not. Keeping his children under control with all dignity. Not a new convert, have a good reputation from those outside. And in parentheses, naturally the church, outside of the church community. So that's the list that is given in 1 Timothy 3, right? And if all we had was that one list, and in light of the way we teach hermeneutics among brethren, we would say, if you have the one, it excludes everything else, right? So like, I'll give you an example with hermeneutics that we use. On baptism, does it have to be in, in the lake or in the sea or in the river, or in a pool of water, and that's because we have all of them, so what we say is, doesn't matter where, as long as they are baptized, as long as they're immersed, right? And then in other things, when one thing is stated, then we exclude everything else. That's the principles that we have applied. What happens when you get to this, however, is there is, again, a tradition in that there's an actual itemized list, or in our case, two itemized lists, But then we get exclusive with this list. And I want you to see as we move on. Look at Titus chapter 1. Just like 1 Timothy 3, above reproach, as 1 Timothy 3, husband of one wife. And then things go a little different. Here it says, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But in, in Titus, it's children who believe. Not accused of dissipation or rebellion. The parenthetical sounds very similar. But when you go keeping his children under control, nothing about them being believing children. Right? So which one is it? And some would say, well, of course, both then. Okay? So believing children, keeping him under control. That's the way we would try to massage the passages and make understanding of them. That's what we typically have done in our books, um, articles, Sermons and Bible studies. Now, continue on. Notice the first one, above reproach. But then he says it again in Titus. Above reproach as God's steward. 
I'm reading out of the new, uh, yeah, New American Standard version. Then, not self-willed, not quick-tempered. Over here, it's temperate, so some might venture to say they're the same. Not addicted to wine, that's same. Not pugnacious, that's the same. Not fond of sordid gain, uh, gain or free from the love of money, that's close enough. And then this person is hospitable. But then we get back to the list of differences again, like not self-willed, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Those are not in that first list. So what are we to make of this? How do we actually look at this? If we're going to have men that are going to be serving as elders, and we're talking about the word qualifications, or as some might say, not qualifications, but qualities that they would have, right? So there's a nuance there. Then how to you to deal with this? And of course, you got the holding fast to the faithful word, which might be able to teach, right? How do you deal with that? Here's the way we can either look at it. Either Paul is writing to Timothy and Titus and have inclusive qualities about what makes for a mature, godly, peaceable man who serves in a capacity of a leader. Because he has the qualities of someone who images after Jesus Christ. Right? Naturally, husband of one wife, that's not going to be it. But you get the point. The rest of the point, this is a picture of someone who is spiritually mature. This is someone who, in, for all intents and purposes, is living the life of one who is a faithful follower of Jesus. Okay? And we'll get into the husband of one wife as far as the faithful follower of Jesus. Or is it very codified, specified list? Nothing more, nothing less. Right? It's one of the two ways we're going to look at this. If there's a third way, come see me after the sermon. I want to know what the third way is. In the future, I'll present the third way if I find that to be consistent with Scripture. So one of those two. And these are very different ways of looking at Scripture, by the way. If we look at it as an itemized list... There's some question marks that others are going to have, right? So if it's an itemized list, then why does Paul give two different lists? If it's supposed to be exclusive to the list, why not say the exact same thing to Paul or to Timothy as he does to Titus or vice versa? Let that sink in. Because the lists are not identical. So that tells me there's a question mark right there, all right? And it should for you as well. Secondly, if it's an itemized list, look, go back at the words and see if maybe there needs to be qualifications or caveats, right? For example, it says he needs his children to be under control versus to have believing children. If they're itemized lists, why not tell Timothy, you need to have believing children kept under control, not just children, and for that matter, so that 2,000 years later, we don't get into this problem, how many believing children? Because I, I guarantee you that is a discussion among every church at some point, right? And I have known preachers, and we've got some here. Uh, I've known uh, elders and brethren who have studied this over and over and over again, and they never agree, although there's a general consensus among brethren. General consensus is all the children must be believing. In other words, all of them are baptized believers. General consensus among 
brethren that we have fellowship with. Okay? But is that what the scripture actually says? Because I don't read the word all. All believing children. I get children. And of course, you've heard the back and forth, right? The tennis match. And the tennis match goes something along the lines of, you know, all believing children or just having believing children. And then you give the reasons why it needs to be that way. But imagine this. Think about it. If it's an exclusive list, if it's an itemized, codified list, think about this. Not looking at 1 Timothy 3, but just the principle of leadership, maturity. One brother has, he's like the Davises. They've got 100 children. Amen. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> that's, maybe that's why I feel old. Um, 99 of them are faithful to the Lord. Baptized into Christ. They never have sinned in their life. Get the point. They're faithful. One child actually has turned his back on the Lord. He renounces the body of Christ. He renounces that God exists. Jesus is not the Christ. With the mindset, this man is not fit to serve as a leader amongst other you know, reasons. From this reason alone, he is not fit. But you go to elder possible number or possible elder number two, and he's got two children because there's a plurality. We talk about that versus one child, and that's another in, uh, nuance. But two children, both of them faithful. I can tell you right now, if you look at numbers alone, who has more experiences as managing his household? Brethren, we don't even have to argue the point. It's more difficult to manage more children than less children. It's difficult managing children, period. One, let alone multiple children. You try and get a multiplicity of children with all their their character traits with all their weaknesses that, that make your parents look like they don't know what they're doing. I mean, there's a whole host of things that are difficult when you add more and more and more children. Okay? So again, if we look at it from an exclusive list, an itemized or codified list, you'd have some difficulty when you don't have caveats. Right? Or it's possible this is Paul telling Timothy and Paul telling Titus, you need mature, godly men. Okay, Mature because they know how to run their household well. Mature and godly because they are faithful to the spouse that they have. Versus the idea that we have a codified, it's, well, when I'm married, I'm married to one spouse, I'm not been messing around i'm not committing adultery or anything i've been faithful to my spouse and then when she passes i was faithful to my spouse and i'm still the same person mature those are the back and forths amongst brethren and so this is not the codified look it is just a big picture look at all the things that these men have they have great qualities about them and it's not a matter of when one has died or not the inclusive list is, you know, we can talk about other things that are not in either of these lists that we would want of men serving in this capacity of elders. That's the debate. And the question is, which one is right? That's where Bible study comes in, brethren. I can tell you what my opinion is. Doesn't matter to you if you've got yours. 
What you want, however, when I say you generally speaking, not you individually, what you want is you want answers. And you want it from the preacher, and it has to match up with you or else. That's what goes on. That's what takes place in the body of Christ. And if not from the preacher in the pulpit, it needs to be from the elders in some kind of a formal public manner so that we can go forward. And then if it doesn't match up, out the door I go. That happens in the body of Christ. I've seen it happen many times. It will not stop just because of the sermon either. But that's what we see. So is it an inclusive qualities or is it specified items? Those are the things that we need to look at if we're going to discern between the actual truth and how we interpret Scripture and the categories that take place over traditions. Right? And so, for instance, when it comes to um, having children, you know, we use the word children. Well, there's plural because in the Greek it's in plural, so therefore it has to be plural. And yet, in any other context outside of the scriptures, we never speak that way to each other, right? How many of you have children? Raise your hand. Wait, where's the Bex? Did you raise your hand? Okay, I knew. Chris, Susan, you guys raised your hand? Two families, one child, but yet they raised their hand. Contextually, outside of the scriptures, we use it differently. So again, how does that influence us? See how we look at scriptures? We want to be right because we, won't, we don't want to assume from God's word. We want to be strict and we want to be pleasing to God, but yet we may at some point lose, I don't know how else to say it, but lose common sense. And that's not our intention. Our intention is to keep common sense and to be biblically accurate. The problem is, unless we have a passage like Deuteronomy whatever or Leviticus whatever or Numbers whatever, where we have specified laws that tell us who, what, when, where, how, and why, right? Which is the laws are very specific. If we have those kind of New Testament laws for what it means to be qualified as an elder, then we're going to have these issues where we have differences. Now, if we have these differences, at what point are we dogmatic? For instance, if I'm committing adultery and I'm one of the shepherds, would I qualify as an elder if I'm going to be unfaithful to my spouse continuously? No. Right? So we get that picture. Like, there's no question about that. Now, some might even go on to say, well, he might repent and humble himself and may continue in that regard. And that would be another subject within the framework of being the husband of one wife or being a one-man woman or a one-woman's man, depending on how you read the Greek. So that's what you have as discussions. Now, moving on into this concept of deacons. This is going to be another area that is somewhat surprising for some of us. All right? You think, this is a lot easier, right? Deacons. Whew, we don't have to worry about that. Well, let's go to the passage. Let's go to um, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and read with me the passage given here before I actually put the slide up. Likewise, oh my word, that whole likewise now, does that mean that the, the deacon has to be all the things that the elder is above? Likewise. Or, depending on your translation, and now I'm reading out of the New King James, not out of the New American Standard, which reads differently. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine. There's a little nuance difference between them and the elders. 
not greedy for money, not holding uh, or holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. That's what's given, verses 8 and 9. And then verse 10, but let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Before I go to the rest of the passage, the word deacon, sleepy means to minister, right? So you guys got your smartphones or whatever devices you have, look them up. It's the same word that is used of many other individuals, including government. So the government is my minister, all right? So this concept of a minister, a servant, one who ministers, is what we're talking about here. If, if we just limit it to just that concept, then you have those who believe that Acts chapter 6, the appointing of the seven godly men amongst the, the women, the widows that were not being kept in with regard to the, um, the, the needs, right? So you have the Greek-speaking Jewish widow women, and then you got the Jewish-speaking ones, and they are the ones that are being taken care of, but these women are not being taken care of. So they appoint seven godly men that would fit like these kinds of qualities or qualifications, depending on how you would nuance that. And so that's what you have here. That's the concept. Well, look at the, the list now. Likewise, American standard, men of dignity, right? So similar to the very first person, right, is a person who's blameless or a man of dignity. He is not double-tongued. And interestingly, he's not addicted to much wine. Well, why, why that difference? Is there, is there a nuance there? That's what it says in Scripture. And, of course, we like one translation over the other because we don't like the way it's worded, maybe, about the whole wine thing. But we've got that. Not addicted to wine, elders. Not addicted to much wine, deacons. They're, and this is where the clause continues, they're not fond of sordid gain. But instead, they hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And then we are told must, they must first be tested. Well, if we get real codified, do the elders must, must the elders be first tested? I, mean, I would like to say yes, personally, but, but it's not in the list. But it is in this list. You see what happens when we get so technical about every single word, we run into difficulties if we want to be that technical. And by the way, there's a lot more that we're not even discussing that we could find to show these nuanced technical differences if it is, in fact, a codified list without any caveats. Okay? And then we get the humdinger. Look at verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, again, New King James translation. New American uh, Standard Bible doesn't say it like that. Or it says, likewise, women, not, like, not likewise their wives. Which is it? Is it women in general or is it wives? If it's wives and we have a codified list, do elders' wives need to meet some kind of qualification that's not listed in either of the list of 1 Timothy 3 or Titus? But now deacons' wives, for your husband to be a deacon, you have to be this way. Or, New American Standard translation, women deacons, women ministers, women servants, not ministers like preachers, as many might think, women servants. 
Now you get into a whole ball game of what does that mean? What roles do they have, right? We don't want to talk about this taboo. Or we will talk about it. Shh. <laughs> Something along those lines. But women, is it women deacons or wives of deacons? Romans chapter 16, verse 1. I want you to just quickly go there and come right back here again. We have a passage. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a deacon, or translations was a servant, or more technically deaconess because she's a woman. So it's in the female aspect of that word. So who is a servant of the church in Sancreo? Would she fit this? If she's a deacon. So again, those are nuances that we all have to meet out as we interpret scripture, as we use hermeneutics, right? And so those are the things. Is this an inclusive list about if we're going to have, like, for instance, in our congregation here, we had women chosen to do the VBS. They were servants in that role, in that capacity, but not in a official public title type way that we we go go with elders and deacons that we have on a board with their pictures and stuff so we got those nuances how do we meet that out through scripture all right so these are things that when we are reading scripture and we are studying scripture and we're studying it privately we're studying it publicly together we have to deal with and our goal is to discern between truth, what does God would actually say versus imposing our views and making it fit to those views to what is said. Two different ways of looking at scripture. And one person says, no, I'm just following scripture. The other person says, no, you're imposing your viewpoints upon the passage of scripture. That's what goes on. So if it's a codified list, are there going to be caveats? Are there going to be things that are very explicit so we know what we're talking about so there are no question marks like in the old law? No question marks. The law is the law. Here's the law. On the first of the week, or in this case, Sabbath day, in that very, very specific, you should worship the Lord on the Sabbath, right? Keep it holy. Keep it separate from the rest of the week. Very explicit. Do we have those? Or how about when it comes to preachers? This is one of the most confusing, even though it doesn't seem confusing on the surface. Today, someone gives me, I forget who it was, came and gave me this big envelope. And it was to Pastor Mitch Davis. 21-page handwritten letter from a person in India. I haven't read it yet. I opened it up kind of briefly. like, that's like one of the New Testament books, not the Bible. (laughs) And so, you know, Pastor Mitch. And furthermore, I remember when I was in Georgia preaching, um, during our church service on a Sunday morning, phone call. This person wanted to speak to the pastor. And it is one of the pastors, elders, that gave me the phone. (laughs) And I looked at him, I said, really? Why aren't you answering the phone? I'm not the pastor. Well, you know what he means. (laughs) We complicate these things. And we complicate them not just with the words in Scripture, but in our actual practice. So we're going to talk about some of these things in just a bit. So we use the word preacher to refer to someone like me, 
right? And no one else in this room, although we may use the word preacher for men and women preaching the gospel, typically it's reserved for someone like me because I'm in the pulpit and you all financially support myself and my family. So I'm the, the preacher, right? That's how it's used. And we say, well, Mitch is not the pastor. But now there are some times when we say, but he could be. Like L.A. Stouffer. I used to work with L.A. back in the early 90s. And L.A. was the preacher but not the pastor. And later on, he became the pastor who was the preacher. Right? Because he was both. And then we'll look at our denominational friends and going, they got it all wrong because they refer to that person in the pulpit as the pastor. How many of you actually studied with them about that word pastor? Because a number of them saying... He is the pastor. He is shepherding the flock. He is one of a number of shepherds in that particular given congregation, right? And so then there's that aspect. You're like, okay, well, but you're still using the word pastor in a way that I don't agree with. Those are nuanced differences that there are going to be discussions about. In some congregations, many, in fact, you have the one pastoral system that happens in small, small country congregations, if you will, not large churches, right? Small churches or small congregations, assemblies. So you have that. But here's the thing. Within the body of Christ, what I have seen from my outside looking in perspective, because I was not raised in the church, we have in some ways pastorized the preacher. Rather than I'm calling it like I see it. We have. I'll tell you why. There have been some who have heard over the years, says, oh, uh, Mr. David Coleman is sick. Mitch, go check on him. Okay. But you get the point. And the point comes follow on the tails of, because that's what we pay you for. I've heard it with my, word, my ears, my words. I've heard it with my ears. In fact, on one occasion, I remember there was a... Um, Someone who was dying in the hospital, this is years ago, and I was in the middle of doing something. I did not have a phone. By the way, by then, many preachers had phones. I wasn't one of them. You know, there was a preacher from another church that came to see that so-and-so in the hospital. That just doesn't look good for a preacher. And when that hit me, it hit me hard. Because number one, I wanted to be there for my brother, sister in Christ. But number two, I was thinking, what did it actually say about what my actual role was? As a brother in Christ, I should love my brother or sister and be there for my brother and sister. No different, no more, no less than you, brethren. Right? But the expectation was there. For good or for evil, the expectation was there. And then I go to a passage like James chapter 5, verse 14. If anyone is sick, call for the preacher. Did I read it right? No, it says, call for the elders. And if we want to get real specific, if that becomes a codified law, elders, do you lay your hands on them? Because that's what the passage goes on to say. Right? Again, at what point are these metaphors, idiomatic expressions, at what point are we codifying certain lists of what needs to be done? You need to really think through these things if we're going to be consistent. All right? So what we've done is we, we, we do that. Or shepherding from the pulpit. 
Because the evangelist is financially supported in our modern culture, and contrary to what I see, 1 Timothy chapter 5, where you have a, a shepherd who also is teaching publicly in this way, that person was to, give, to be given double honor. We don't practice double honor. We don't even practice the honor in a financial sense amongst elders. But yet, if we follow it as a codified law, we ought to be supporting our elders, our shepherds, financially. So again, traditions versus discerning from actual what the scriptures teach. What do the actual scriptures simply um, reveal as the practice? So those are the things that you'll see. But instead, it's the preacher every Sunday in the pulpit. So he shepherds, even if we won't use that word, because that word only associates with the elders but in, in light of conversations, I've had conversations with elders for at least 20 whatever years, and I've talked to them about these very things. And what we have is we've pastorized the preacher, right? We don't call him pastor, but in many churches, you treat the preacher like a pastor, if not the pastor. Brethren, no wonder we put men in this pulpit on pedestals that ought not to be there as a side issue to what's going on here with the practice, all right? So all of these things take place, but here's what the scriptures actually show. Paul writes to the church at Rome, and I want you to go to Romans 15. We'll look at these last two passages, and we'll kind of wrap everything up. In Romans chapter 15, so Paul writes to the saints, and as he's finishing up some of the things that he's wanting to say to them, notice these words. Verse 14, now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to uh, also admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister, right, a servant, a deacon, if you will, a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. Here's an apostle who was a servant. You want to go into the Greek or deacon-like, and who is a minister, or excuse me, a, an evangelist, right? Doesn't say evangelist, but he says ministering the gospel to the Gentiles. So he's preaching the gospel to those who are lost, needing salvation, primarily non-speaking Jews, right? So here's a person with multiple descriptions, including a preacher, right, who's evangelizing and preaching. And of course, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the same apostle Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. These are Christians that he's writing to, not non-Christians, or it's not about non-Christians. And look at what he says to them. So 1 Thessalonians Chapter 3, therefore, or about Timothy, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. And then, so we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, a servant or deacon of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. So Paul is saying, we stayed here. We sent Timothy to you, brethren, that he may minister serve you 
in the way of teaching God's word. And so that is what allows me, from a biblical standpoint, who is not a shepherd, to be in the pulpit. Those passages are what we use for preachers. But if we get exclusive about it, which is what the practice is, then typically the times we have our elders, our shepherds, right, the presbytery, right, when they come here, it's not typically in a week-to-week sermon after sermon after sermon. It may be to make uh, an announcement of some sort from a leadership vantage point, a decision from a leadership vantage point, or whatever it may be. And then beyond that, it is behind closed doors, right? But the preachers, very, very public. Here's where I see where the disconnect from a, from a cultural standpoint that is taking place. First and foremost, preachers are typically that to share the gospel. And it, it is not limited to just the lost. But when you have someone who's an evangelist, and they say, this is our evangelist, and you want to get codified, legalistic about it, then he ought not to be in the pulpit. He ought to be sharing good news with the lost. And it is from that vantage point that you either get another preacher to be in the pulpit, or what you see in scriptures is the shepherds that do the public teaching. But that's not our tradition. And every uh, group of elders I've ever spoke with saying, yeah, that's kind of uncomfortable for us to be in the pulpit all the time because that's, that's not what we do. This is what I do for my lifestyle or my, my career, or whatever it may be. And, you know, you've been trained in this. You do it all the time. You get better at it, so on and so on. And there's reasons for it. But that's the practice that we have, right? So, again, we come back to Scripture. What does Scripture actually teach? Is it a codified list? Or is it a, an inclusive principle about how it's being used? Because in some ways it's codified, in other places it's inclusive, right? Inclusive with regard to um, preaching and how the role of, of preachers are used today versus maybe two millennia ago. So what's the main point then? The main point is that when we look at Scripture, sometimes we look at it like just that. When we read narrations, we read it like a code system, a legal jurisdiction type publication. Or we treat it as such. What we need to do is we need to look at those scriptures and see, you know, why were these men? Why was Paul telling Timothy? Or why was Paul telling Titus about the eldership? In fact, I I said the last two passages, I'm going to use one more because we'll go back to Titus chapter 1. I'll give you the reason why I say that. Because when you get the, the contrast on here's why I want these men to be godly, mature men, then you get it versus a codified list. And I want you to look, go to Titus chapter 1 again, and let's read. Let's see if I can get there. So remember at verse 9 we finished. Here's a person who holds fast the faithful word as, as he's been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Well, here's the reason why he needs to be mature in the word of God, the elder, the shepherd. For there are many insubordinate, idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Well, we don't have those of the circumcision. That's not an issue for us today, right? 
But if you don't look at it as a codified list and you see, here's the reason why. I mean, you're going to have people who are going to bring division in the body of Christ. And you need godly men who are peacemakers. Not guys who are looking for a fight. Guys who are mature so they handle things with Christ-like wisdom, prudence, and love. To deal with the variety, the spectrum, the wide spectrum of differences within the body of Christ whereupon divisions can take place and has taken or have taken place over the years. These insubordinate and idle talkers and deceivers, whether they're of the circumcision or not, in this case, contextually, many of them were. Their mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households. They teach things which they ought not to teach and they do it these individuals not do it for because they have a scruple. They do it because they have sordid gain in mind. Like, I want power. I want these people, the flock, to follow me. That's kind of people that you don't want having, disrupting the body of Christ. Instead, they would destroy it if left up to their ways. And so, that's the reason that you need these men. Even like in regarding um, deacons, these men need to be godly men, not after sordid gain because they're going to be handling the finances for these widows in need. And can you imagine them pocketing a few dollars here and there every, every time they go to one widow's house? Instead of $100, it's here's $95. That's what, the, that's what the shepherds have wanted you to have, $95. And I pocket five. Imagine if I do that 100 times. Make some good money. And now I'm like a tax collector and have a bad reputation. These are the reasons for these roles in the body of Christ. I hope you can see that. So not your typical, here's the qualification and boom, let it go. And we've, gone, we've gone through all those sermons. Look at it from a standpoint of discerning between what the scriptures actually say and what, the, and what our traditions are and... If there's room for differences among brethren, don't go hunker down in your corner. Understand that brethren that have different opinions from you, they love God too, right? You guys got to work through those differences because we are a body of believers who love the Lord and are wanting to do the Lord's will. And we, as a body of believers made up individually, are going to have individualistic differences that we're going to have to work through. Let's work through them, all right? So that's the lesson for you. Next week, well, two weeks from now, we'll get back into the series, and we're actually going to look at when the church comes together and when the church is not coming together, but separately because we had that word church, right, and how we use that word. So we're going to look at that. Next week, we're going to have a different lesson, kind of take a break from this little series. Anyway, if you're here this morning and you are not in the body of Christ, I want you to listen carefully. Just as was given by Brother Bill this morning in his talk about the Lord's Supper, our God so loved you, he gave you his son to die for you. And when you die with him in that watery grave known as baptism to rise and walk in newness of life, you are added by him to his church, the Lord's church. And there are going to be people here on earth that are designated to watch over you, to love you, and to care for you so that you grow faithful in service to the Lord. They're known as shepherds 
over your soul, like our true great shepherd, as Peter speaks of in 1 Peter. And they'll hold your hand and they'll help you. And your brothers and sisters in Christ will love you. And I pray that you will join that body of believers by confessing Jesus to be the Christ. And brethren, if you need prayers, a tradition that we do is at the end of the sermon, come forward. Confess your sins if you need. When you humble yourself, you have brethren that will be there for you if we are in fact true brethren in Christ. So that is your invitation as together we stand and sing.